Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. The Vifredo Lamb exhibition just opened at the Tate in London. It'll run through January 8th. Because Gallery Grzynska represents the artist's estate, I spoke to Matthias Rastorfer about the development of Vifredo Lamb's market. Towards the end of the interview, you'll hear something very interesting about Vifredo Lamb and Jean-Michel Basquiat. But before we get to that, let's start with Matthias Rastorfer's thoughts on the exhibition at the Tate. Um, actually, it's uh, just last week that the exhibition opened, and uh, I must say it was um, especially touching as this is probably one of the larger last projects of Nick Sarota that he um, was uh, 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 looking at as uh, one of his major projects to conclude before he departs the Tate. And um, it was especially touching as I know him for over 25 years and he was uh, rather uh, complimentary of the gallery's contribution to art history and to uh, the help it has lent over the years to the um, Tate Institution. Um, the show itself uh, got great reviews in uh, the British newspapers. Um, it had been shown before at the Centre Georges Pompidou and at the um, Reina Sofia in Madrid. So it's the last stop of a very important retrospective that puts Bifredo Lam basically in the context where he belongs, which is one of the great surrealists. Um, it takes him out of the corner of the South American Cuban Picasso, as he was called in the past. And um, one of the focuses in the Tate uh, was to show him as a great internationalist, as an artist that had traveled, had lived um, in Europe and America, had uh, traveled more extensively than most other artists of his generation, while having been incredibly handicapped by a communist uh, Cuban passport requiring visas for literally every trip he took. Uh, and yet he was um, traveling um, extensively uh, even to the Far East, uh, South America, North America, and uh, was actually living in places like Paris, uh, Italy, Zurich, um, different locations in the States. Um, and when you do the research that uh, this most unlikely artist um, of um, uh, this origin with a Chinese father and an African slave mother would end up um, being acquired with the jungle painting in the early 40s by Alfred Barr for the Museum of Modern Art um, is an extraordinary story in itself. Also uh, noting that the New York Times um, in uh, the time when the MoMA bought this painting uh, had a one-page article about this acquisition calling um, Wilfredo Lam the Negro artist, um, who obviously was um, in part invited by all the great collectors in New York, but uh, couldn't even go into a bar at the time. Um, so this story of this extraordinary man who uh, became successful against all odds is very well represented at the Tate. It's almost surprising to me that it is taken this long for that that 
internationalism you just described somewhat bring him into uh, a focus. You, one would think that has been a very mm. important theme for a number of years, uh, and his embodying all of these, um, uh, for lack of a better term, crossroads in various uh, uh, aspects of art history would have uh, drawn more attention to, to him. Did, did it do you have insight into Sirota's um, sort of thinking on, on why now? Well, uh, it was interesting uh, that uh, literally all of the, uh, the new leadership of the Tate participated in this exhibition. And I spoke with each one of them and they all had a slightly different take. So um, uh, Nick uh, actually, I think, has this uh, large overview of having built this uh, extraordinary Tate Modern, um, uh, which uh, has a, a legacy that uh, will last uh, uh, for decades to come that he has built up. So for him, this was part of the um, international uh, perception of the Tate to look into areas that uh, need rediscovering, uh, into areas that uh, matter uh, for the 20th century, uh, have uh, left a real contribution. And I think from that point of view, Wilfredo Lam obviously was much closer to Picasso than he was, let's say, to Mata. So much less of a South American artist, uh, but much more of an international surrealist artist who, um, who really had um, been part of the surrealist movement. Um, there are photographs of him in New York in the early 50s, uh, sitting together with Giacometti and Max Ernst. Uh, he was part of the uh, Guggenheim Museum of uh, Modern uh, History and Art, that Peggy Guggenheim built before the Guggenheim was built uh, on Fifth Avenue. And um, there were exhibitions with Mark Kiesler, uh, uh, with uh, blood flames where uh, paintings by Lam were hung on the ceiling uh, in a booth surrounded by curtains and Max Ernst was lying on a bench looking up to the ceiling. Um, so there were all these extraordinary experiments and very uh, interesting juxtapositions with other artists and none of them were, of course, black, or none of them were in any way um, of ethnic origin. So he was always the, the unusual uh, in this group, but he was part of that group. And I think that's what fascinated um, Nick Sorota. Now, I think from another point of view that Tate was uh, actually telling me that was interesting to them was to actually show that within the context of exactly the opposite, which is the the ethnic side, the unusual uh, origins of artists that uh, come from uh, corners of the world where one would not expect to have great fine art coming from, and um, which is another series of exhibitions that the Tate has done over the last few years. So from many angles and many points of view, uh, it made a lot of sense to show Lam right now. What effect have these three uh, uh you know, shows the or destinations had on his market? Um, obviously, that's um, uh, something that uh, is rather technical, but I can, I can tell you that when we took on the estate in uh, 2010, um, the next year, 2011, uh, the volume of uh, Lam's work already had doubled that had come up at auction. And in 2015 and 2000. Um, uh, 12, uh, it, it even even quadrupled. Um, so it, it's interesting how um, our our take on how to show Lam um, 
put him back into an international context out of a primarily Miami-driven uh, uh, market. And that is interesting in terms of a, a larger phenomenon. Um, it is always fascinating to me, as we concentrate very often on, on, on artist estates, that if an artist estate is not really taken care of, even a great artist might slip in perception and in value. Um, and that is what happened to uh, Wilfredo Lam. He basically, after his death, I mean, he died in 1982. Um, for a short while, he was with Lelon, and then uh, basically the representations were um, more or less um, uh, in, in, in Miami. And uh, that made it a much more local market and a much more local artist. So when we took on the estate in 2010, the first thing we did was take it out of that local market and bring it back to the international scene. We did a very important um, exhibition at Freeze Masters in 2013, which was actually then visited by all the directors from um, the Tate. And that led eventually to the three shows at the Centre Georges Pompidou, the Reina Sofia and the Tate, um, because uh, for the museum people that came to see that show at uh, Freeze Masters was uh, a rediscovery. And so the other part that played a role was rediscovering the fact that his father actually had been Chinese. And the, na the name Lam is obviously Chinese. So from that point of view for the market, it was also interesting to open um, the doors to China. And then the other part that happened was that um, we put him in the context of uh, his peers, which I had mentioned earlier, which were the surrealists from Europe, Picasso also in particular. And um, it took him out of this local context into an international context. So apart from the fact that it also um, uh, became much more uh, internationally available, opening a European, a Chinese and a North American market, um, prices basically went up 20% in 2015. Um, and they continue to go up. Um, I think also um, placement obviously is an important part that the gallery does. Um, having sold in 50 year history, mainly and only exclusively to collectors and to museums, never having ever sold a work at auction. I think we're quite the odd men out there. Um, we've always placed works with important collections. And so that also helped the market. Um, I think it's interesting that Lam really was a diamond in the rough, let's say, and uh, he is really being recognized now. It's interesting you mentioned the auctions. There, there was a um, a work sold, I think, in London in a surrealism sale last year mm -hmm. uh, at Christie's, which I don't think is the only time he's appeared uh, outside of, say, a Latin American sa sale, but it was certainly a very prominent mm -hmm. Uh, uh, sale. I think it was a work from the 50s mm -hmm. uh, or so. Yes. Uh, is, is that is that sort of part of this process you just discussed of the sales uh, 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 increasing and uh, the willingness to view him as a surrealist or is it just simply the availability of a work that uh, Christie's perceived to be, you know, of the sort of evening sale caliber? That's an excellent question, actually, and very appropriate question. Um, I think over the last few years, you uh, certainly have Wilfredo Lam uh, still present in the Latin American sales, but also for the first time in decades, you had him in the um, Impressionist and Modern Evening sales, which um, 
is an in interesting distinction um, that is kind of a knighting of an artist uh, from that region if he is no longer just considered a quote-unquote Latin American artist, but if he is actually part of the larger canon of uh, uh, international and European modern uh, masters. And that has taken place over the last five years frequently now in evening sales. Yes, I mean, that's a similar process to what happened with Francis Bacon, who was once featured mm -hmm. in Irish and British uh, uh, sales <laughs> uh, 15, 20 years ago. So yeah, anything's yeah. possible, I suppose. So you're saying that's more about a willingness to include him uh, and his prominence, not necessarily that, you know, works of uh, quality are hard to come by. It's both. I mean, uh Obviously, the 1940s uh, are the rarest works, and um, uh, up to the early 50s, the ones that are uh, the ones that fetch the highest prices. And obviously, they are not just um, auction records, uh, about uh, four and a half million dollars, but they're also private sales that uh, that took place in in that in that vicinity. So, um, when you look at that uh, retrospectively, uh, again, before we took on the estate, before 2010. Uh, those prices were not realized. And you mentioned earlier, one, the rediscovery that is um, uh, Father's Family is Chinese, uh, uh, which is just interesting. Was it not known that uh, his father was Chinese? No, it actually, uh, it, it's very obvious once you know it, but it wasn't obvious to 90% of the people that uh, actually were buying lamb. So I think it was a, it was a, a hidden obvious element looking at the name lamb which is uh, clearly a, a, a very chinese name and a very common name in china but it was not something that people had thought of when they thought of lamb i mean lamb basically um again before 2010 before we started working on this uh had been considered um the cuban picasso um uh, I want to get to the Picasso uh, in a second, but so have Chinese collectors become interested in Lam, or is that still part of the process of making the connection for them? No, it's beginning. Um, and obviously we have been part of, uh, actually I'm part of the committee, selection committee for the Art Basel Hong Kong, and we've been showing uh, Wilfredo Lam's work at the Art Basel Hong Kong uh, from, from the first uh, time we were exhibiting. So this is by now um, almost five years. And um, that has uh, been a constant and it has been something that uh, has triggered an extraordinary interest. Uh, we did a book on Lam in, in Mandarin. And uh, when we were showing that book together with his work in uh, Hong Kong, um, it was really uh, slightly frustrating that uh, most people came to us and said, uh, how wonderful do you have that in English? Um, so uh, it, it was it was the Hong Kong Chinese and the mainland Chinese who wanted to uh, know more about Wilfredo Lam, but they didn't want to have the book in Chinese. So it was um, instantly something that triggered an interest, but it took about two or three years to uh, become uh, something that uh, uh, the, the Chinese were more familiar with. And by now we have several requests from uh, Chinese and Asian museums um, that want to do major shows with Lam. We also have uh, Hong Kong and mainland China collectors who bought his work. Um, so it's beginning and it's becoming something that uh, for the Chinese is something where um, they consider him their, their modern master, their 20th century modern master. 
Um, the only other uh, person that has that distinction um, in the context of, of a Western recognition as well is uh, Wookie. So uh, they wanted it in English for the validation that he is a Western artist uh, and, and so the signaling uh, of that as opposed to having the book in Chinese? I think, I, think, I think you're asking much smarter questions than I did. I didn't question that. I should have. Um, I simply noted that nobody wanted a Chinese <laughs> Next time, bring more English catalogs. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So on, on the Picasso side, uh, and not in art historical ter- terms, just in simply in market terms, I, I could see it mm. being both a blessing and a curse. And in some of the reading, some of the reviews, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's treated as both a mm-hmm. blessing and, and a curse. Mm-hmm. But, but, but for mm-hmm. collectors, is it uh, uh, important to show the connection between the two and the sense of um, uh, camaraderie for lack of a better term? Uh, or is it uh, uh, he's overshadowed by Picasso sort of see, seen as sort of a derivative uh, uh, artist mm. that way? Well, you know, Picasso's famous saying was, uh, don't show me a masterpiece, I'll take the idea. <laughs> so uh, I think the, 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 the friendship actually between uh, Picasso and Lam was was really fascinating, and the more research we did, uh, the more I was astounded. I mean, there were these moments where Picasso actually introduced Lam to African masks and said, um, "You should be proud of that." So uh, at the beginning, Wilfredo Lam was more hesitant to uh, pay um, tribute to his heritage and to. Um, the origins, um, more uh, ignoring them and studying in Spain and wanting to learn more about uh, surrealism. So this is why uh, Lam actually uh, was inspired by Picasso, including the grisaille uh, technique, certainly that uh, is something else that he was admiring with Picasso. But very different from Picasso, he then went a very different route and he went uh, much further into surrealism um, and uh, remained uh, figurative throughout um, and was developing vocabulary that was really quite consistent, different from Picasso, who tried various different styles and uh, was constantly evolving uh, in, 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 in new techniques and new experiments. So uh, Lam really is, um, in a very short moment, someone who is closer to Picasso as, let's say, Braque was during the Cubist period, closer to Picasso, and then uh, takes very much his own route. Um, He was never really close to people like Mata or other Southern American artists that one would have thought would be uh, his um, uh, people that he would admire or like to be with. He was literally with the the Western crowd. So, um, but to come back to your question, was it a blessing or is it it a curse? it's certainly both, but the more you actually deal with Lam and his development and his history, it's only a blessing because he certainly was inspired by a great master um, who helped him at the early beginning, and then he developed on his own. And, and there has been a great demand for surrealist work these last, uh, you know, eight, ten years. Correct. And there's only so much of it. And I would think, you know, in, in that sense, he's an artist uh, uh, more people would be drawn to just because of the availability and even just the price point. Well, there's another uh, secret I can share with you. Um, when I was younger, I worked with Anina Nose in 1980-81 when Basquiat was in the basement, uh, obviously, of Anina's gallery. 
And um, at that time, I remember that uh, there were books by Lam that uh, Basquiat had looked at. So about two years ago, uh, I contacted Anina Nose again, and we talked about Lam and Basquiat. And she said, but you know, he was really inspired by him and on more than one way. And I discussed this with her. And one of the uh, obvious elements was the fact that he was uh, uh, very interested in his iconography. But the other part was that he felt um, a closeness to Lam as um, the island artist, the odd artist out in a uh, non-island context where uh, Basquiat used to say, you know, I'm the great artist, I'm invited everywhere, but I can't get a cab on the street. And uh, Lam, you know, having had that early experience of uh, being part of the MoMA, but not being able to go to a restaurant. So there was this glass ceiling, if you like, that both experienced, and yet they were part of something extraordinary. Um, and so we published a book uh, just last year with Anina Nose uh, about those parallels of Basquiat's admiration for Wilfredo Lam. And that's the part that I wanted to emphasize, is that the legacy of Lam, very different from Picasso, has inspired very differently from Picasso and developed in a very different uh, direction that inspired people just like us. Well, I was waiting for you to say that you were going to, you were organizing a uh, Lam Basquiat uh, show that will travel around. Well, that is something I always wanted to do. I did a little teaser of that um, uh, at the Art Basel uh, uh, in 2015, where we did uh, two uh, um, Basquiat paintings in uh, juxtaposition with three Lamb paintings. It was just a teaser to show um, some obvious parallels, and um, it would require, uh, and it would be an incredible show to do. It would also be a, a, a great deal of work to to get all the loans, yeah? <laughs> true, true. Uh, but you haven't given up on it, I take it. No, 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 I, I certainly didn't. And I think, you know, this is the part that fascinates uh, me in, in what we do as a gallery at is that we actually, you know, have the similar kind of uh, childish excitement to make these rediscoveries as you probably feel when you discover a young artist. Well, yes, the putting something in context is uh, central to adding value. I mean, it, it's remarkable uh, the amount of work that goes into uh, validating and educating people to reorient a market. That is one part, but I tell you, the real driving force behind it is having fun. <laughs> I mean, when Christina and I did that, it was just pure fun. I mean, it was something, uh, you know, also to, to, to show things that are not known uh, in art history and to be the first to actually uh, document it, um, it's quite a thrill. Well, I can't wait to uh, uh, see the show myself, uh, and I hope uh, the the effect of having all these people uh, see uh, Lamb's work is uh, good for the estate. Uh, Matthias, I appreciate your taking the time to tell us about it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 